I think most of China is a tremendously well-kept travel secret somehow. I could never understand fully why um, people have a little bit of a mental block. They get to the word China and they kind of hear something that they know about China, which is, you know, related to economics or history. And I think people don't, they don't really think of China as a sort of a modern destination in, you know, as a country. I think that even still, a lot of people don't get to some of the smaller provinces. And, and I think there's, so, there's just so much richness. This week on The Point, Megan Eaves, a travel writer and editor with a passion for China. I love talking to Megan. She's smart, thoughtful, and has a lot to say about travel writing, China, and the travel industry. She joined me from her home in London, where she's in lockdown. I want to talk about your series of essays, China as I have known it. Um, I really, really enjoyed reading it. Can I ask you to read a passage? Okay. When I started this essay series, I promised China as I have known it, without the politics, just an armchair lens on a part of the world many people haven't seen. But of course, it's not always that easy. Travel writing, if done well, is a difficult endeavor. You take people's lives, cultures, homelands, traditions, foods, livelihoods, religions, and beliefs into your own hands. You try to understand them. You try to open your heart to them, to expand your worldview, to learn and to be taught, to put yourself away and just listen to dig for some light or sense of connection. If you do it well, you find our common humanity and express it for others to read. I know I have not always done it successfully or even well, but that is what I try and have tried to do with my life's work so far. I thought that was a really beautiful and really sensitive description of, of the responsibility that, that comes with being a travel writer. What are the times that you felt successful in finding that common humanity and expressing it for others? What being an editor at Lonely Planet taught me was, you know, that we all have to look at our own experiences in writing, especially, you know, we've all had to look at ourselves, especially after, you know, summer 2020 and Black Lives Matter. And I think everybody has become even more aware now. Deconstructing the travel writer's gaze is a really important thing to do. It's just impossible to get it right every time. But, you know, I'm hoping with this essay series that I've gotten it right because I'm, you approach something with empathy. You have to think about the people and the places you're writing about as places that people live and people as individuals who have lives and pain and experiences and, and joys, just like you do, that they're not a, a painting that you're experiencing through some sort of glass window. A lot of the work I've tried to do on my Lonely Planet guides has been around making sure that the way we talk about these things is appropriate and empathetic um, and, and questioning language that we use every day. I, I've really tried my best in all of the things that I've written to do that. But I think, you know, it's subjective whether, you know, someone thinks that is a good portrayal or not. And that's the, that's the trouble with, with this is it is all personal. Ideally, it is. In the essay you write, like any writer or woman, 
I suffer from a heavy dose of imposter syndrome, and the sphere of people who are interested in, in writing about China is dominated by type A men, many of them know-it-alls, who frankly intimidate me. And for this, I have doubted my own experience and automatically tend to invalidate it. Is that, is that, is that a China thing or is that a travel writer thing? Uh, both, I think. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the world's spheres are dominated by type A white men, let's be honest. But, <laughs> you know, um, but definitely it is it is a huge, I would say, problem in the, the, the travel writing world. It always has been. I mean, the, if you look at the, the history of travel writing, I like over the summer when I we didn't have a lot going on in, in the lockdowns, I ordered a bunch of books because I wanted to kind of up my own um, my own knowledge about female and, and, and person of color travel writers. And there isn't a lot, you know? Um, and I, you know, I grabbed a few books, but there aren't, like, if you look at the history of women who have written about China, there aren't that many, either Chinese or foreign, Western, international. So, you know, I read a lot of Isabella Bird. And <laughs> when did you first become interested in China? I first became interested in China when I was in college. It, you know, a lot of people that I know that have got interest in China did it through sort of learning martial arts or wushu as kids, and I didn't have that. But when I was in college, I um, just loved studying foreign languages and, and foreign cultures, and I was just really curious and interested in, in other places. It was a sort of odd situation where I I kind of didn't have any other language to take. I had tried a few others and didn't really get along with them very well. You know, I tried German and I tried Russian and Chinese was another option at my university. And um, I just gave it a go and ended up really falling in love with the language. And um, it was through that and through my um, university instructor that I ended up going to China for the first time. And, and then my career and life followed a, a, a very interesting trajectory after that. <laughs> How did that interest in China transition to writing about China? Sort of first year that I lived um, there and I was working as a, an English teacher, I was in a small city in Zhejiang. There were no other international teachers in my school. I was kind of on my own. And my life was very sort of singular, you know, I went to school and I had great relationships with the teachers I worked with and stuff and, and my students, but I didn't have a big social life. I've always been a writer since I was about, you know, 10 years old. And um, I just started kind of writing about my experiences. And one day I was on a bus, I think it was a weekend, and I had taken a bus to, to Hangzhou for the weekend. And um, I just kind of outlined this book in this kind of moment of, I don't know, I just had a, a sort of a, an epiphany. And I started this outline of what the book might be. And I just started writing it, you know, in the evenings and weekends when I had spare time. And um, it became this little book that I self-published. But it was just a sort of guide to how to get a job in China as an English teacher, what to expect, you know, because at the time, I mean, this was 2006, there was a lot less online content about this, but it was like a boom for, for foreign teachers in China at that time. And a lot of people were arriving without much, with no experience of China and no, you know, no background really just kind of had been thought, well, I'll travel and this is a great way to kind of get a job and do it. Yeah, that's how it started. And I just carried on and, and kept cracking at it for many years. Most of them were very low or unpaid. <laughs> so you, you, you self-published this book. How did that lead to a job with Lonely Planet? Um, it didn't directly. Um, <laughs> it, it, it did later, but it was a sort of the first step down a path toward that. 
I really wanted to be a guidebook writer, you know, and I care, I carried Lonely Planet and Rough Guide around, around, you know, my first trips around China and other places that I traveled in those early days. And to me, that was just a dream. It was a dream to have that, that job, to be paid to go out and, and research and travel. It still is a dream, like, you know, having done it uh, for a living, it, it is, has, was, and always will be my dream job. After I left China, I went back to the U.S. for a short, very short period of time and ended up getting hired to write a guidebook to the city of El Paso, which was very random. And I mean, I'm from from New Mexico originally. It's a place I've spent a lot of time, but it was it was kind of a one off. I had a lot of fun going to El Paso and researching that. But that was the first real guidebook that I wrote. And then I just, you know, I kept sort of cracking away at, at writing online and writing my own blogs and writing my own stuff. And then it, you know, gradually it got, there were better gigs and people seemed to have a little bit more money, you know, startup money and that sort of thing. And that became a bit more um, lucrative. And then eventually I moved around with, um, with my ex-husband and we ended up landing in London after quite a few different moves around. We lived in the US for a little while. We lived in Prague for a little while. Um, we were back in China for a while. And so eventually we landed in London. My, my Lonely Planet story is a very classic Lonely Planet story in that I, um, I was sort of, it was a, it was a Sunday morning and I was, I was hung over and I came downstairs and, uh, was going to make a bacon sandwich. And I had a habit of kind of looking at the, the job ads on a couple of, you know, guidebook publishers and, and places I wanted to work. And, um, and they had this job going that I was like, I'm going to apply for that. And it was a, it was one of those, you know, LinkedIn easy apply. <laughs> so I didn't even have to fill out anything. I just like sent it off and, and forgot about it. And then, um, you know, a few weeks later, I got an email from a guy called Tom Hall, who was like, why don't you come in for an interview? And, and that was it. Like I did a couple of interviews and, and my first job with them was in their their digital team. So I was doing online content and eventually with my China experience, um, was hired into a, a brand new role at the time, which was their destination editor for all of all of sort of East and Central Asia, minus Japan. Um, so I covered China and Mongolia, Korea, um, and all of, you know, Central Asia, the stands. So it was a big job. I loved it. It was it was just so amazing. You wrote Having worked in the travel industry for 15 years, I've witnessed both the tremendous benefits and extreme drawbacks to tourism. Implemented thoughtlessly and without planning, tourism can steamroll cultural heritage and wreak havoc on the environment. What are some of the best examples of thoughtful planning and worst examples of thoughtless planning that you've seen in China? Mass tourism as a concept is basically how tourism is developed around the world. And most countries... Um, or destinations have until or up to now wanted to get the most number of travelers they possibly could and have done everything in their development plans to achieve that. I think that that is changing. I see that changing in the travel industry. And I'm hoping that that is a change that will come across the board, that that more and more uh, destinations and destination marketing organizations and, and other you know, tourism boards are looking to attract a more boutique traveler um, that is a more 
quality kind of stay for longer and spend more, but not necessarily um, mass tourism in the idea of people being unloaded off of a cruise ship, for example, to run havoc around a town for, you know, six hours and then jump back on the cruise ship and leave zero income to the locals. So when we're talking about China, um, you know, gosh, there's a lot of places that I think it wouldn't be difficult for anybody to pinpoint that may have suffered from mass tourism. And because China is such a big country, such a populous country, it has its own inbuilt domestic tourism machine. You can see that in most of the major sites in China, that there are too many visitors, too many people at once. And I think actually a lot of these sites, you know, like Forbidden City and stuff, have have implemented new measures to help curb this. Um, you know, caps on numbers per day and that sort of thing. Um, but but I'd really love to talk about sort of the more the ones that I think are places and and, and people who are doing tourism well. And that is to say, attracting thoughtful travelers who spend more time and who want to um, learn something about the culture, learn something about the local way of life and leave economically leave their money in local hands. There's a really cool place, the Linden Center, in I'd like to call them out because I think it's so cool in Yunnan. And they have basically like renovated this heritage building and turned it into kind of a hotel, kind of a cultural center. It's a place that you can go and stay. And it's in a really rural part of, of Yunnan. And they, you know, they put on workshops. Um, that give travelers the chance to experience and learn about local intangible cultural heritage, you know, um, so arts and crafts and food and cooking and all that. Um, they also do like spiritual getaways. So you spend time being immersed in sort of local religious traditions or folk, folk religions and that sort of thing. Um, and they're just doing a lot, you know, they're preserving, you know, heritage building. They are getting people to come and stay in one place and stay multiple nights. And they're encouraging people above all to really get involved with the local culture and to learn about local way of life and about the people who actually live in the places that they're visiting. It's a great example of, of that in China. And I think that's a new trend that's coming around in China is, is that younger Chinese travelers want these types of experiences too. It's not just, you know, foreign backpackers anymore. It's, it's Chinese travelers that are looking for these kind of experiences. And, you know, previously it would have been get on a group tour and go, you know, visit the top five sites of, of Xi'an or wherever. Now, you know, I think younger travelers are, are looking for a totally different thing. Right now you're in lockdown in London, and like millions of people around the world, you can't travel internationally. Is, is anyone commissioning travel writing right now? Lockdown has really forced me to think about my profession, think about my career, um, think about the world and the planet and um, climate change and all the things um, that we are facing right now as a species and a planet. And lockdown has been a great way, a great opportunity to, for me personally to think about those things and to think about my contribution to the climate crisis, for example, up until now. So yeah, um, to answer your question specifically, yeah, there are places that are commissioning, um, you know, but 
I'm not doing a lot of travel writing at the moment. I think a lot of travel writers probably aren't because most of the, let's say, for example, UK newspapers with travel sections are focusing on uh, micro adventures nearby to home um, and getting out and doing walks in the UK or things that are lockdown appropriate which is completely understandable. Um, And it's not that I wouldn't be happy to write about those things, but because there's so little travel content being commissioned right now, the competition for getting pitches and getting, you know, commissions is just extra. So I've given myself the the chance to kind of um, change my my trajectory a little bit. And I've been doing, um, I've still been doing travel writing, but just far less of it. And instead I've been working... um, doing communication work with, um, with a biodiversity and conservation NGO. And that's been really fascinating and interesting to me, um, to sort of diversify in that direction. But it, but it has given me pause to think about, um, encouraging mass tourism and encouraging people to go, I don't want to be doing that anymore. That's me personally. So when I write about travel from now on, it's going to have to be from the lens of if you're going to do this, you have to do it in a way that is, um, you know, at, as, at its best regenerative. So going somewhere and actually doing something that gives back helps the planet and the local community. Um, and, and uh, you know, at at the very least is somehow sustainable, carbon negative, you know, travel by land, try to not take so many flights, if any, only take flights where you absolutely have to, all those sorts of things. So it's, it's encouraged me to think about this a lot. And I think the travel industry, you know, it it shouldn't and can't come back the way that it was. It needs to, it needs an overhaul. And it's getting that, you know, because we're just, we're just stuck. We're just nothing we can do. And it's going to be like this for, for months more to come. So we have to reinvent ourselves and the way we live on this planet. That was Megan Eaves from Lockdown in London. Check out her website, MeganEaves.com, for links to all her work, including China as I have known it. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can also find Megan on Twitter. Her handle is MegoIzzy, M-E-G-O-I-Z-Z-Y. Next week on The Point... Director Tony Sun is in the studio. We talk about his new documentary, Light Chaser, set in one of the coldest and most unforgiving climates on the planet. I'll talk to you then.